You know, the truth is, we're all ruled by something. Every one of us is bound to something that drives us, something that motivates us to get up in the morning, something that gives us a sense of purpose, reason to do what we do. We're all ruled by something. For some, of course, it is a desire for material things, material wealth. For some, uh, it's a sense of moral obligation to provide for themselves and for their families. Uh, of course, if you've traveled much, you know that in some countries where poverty is extreme, people are often ruled by the basic need to simply survive from one day to the next. There are people who are ruled by addictions, people who are ruled by a sense of religious duty, Yet there are people ruled by something as simple as the need to please other people, right? There are a lot of people who live their, their entire lives driven by the need for validation from other people. The point is every person on this planet is ruled by something. And of course, in our culture, there are many different somethings for us to choose from. But when you become a Christian, when you're born again or born of the Spirit, as Jesus put it in John 3, 7, and 8, then you no longer have to be ruled spiritually by anything in or of this world. Because once you're born of the Spirit of God, then Jesus Christ is your King. In fact, to those, to those who belong to Him, there is no other King. When you belong to Christ, you no longer are spiritually subject to the kingdoms of this world because you're now part of a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, which also means you're no longer subject against your will to the ruler of this world because you are now subject to a new ruler, a new king, Jesus Christ, who has set you free from the law of sin and death. The Apostle Paul said, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, Romans 8, 2. Does that mean then that as Christians we now live in a kingdom without laws, without spiritual laws? Well, of course not. Paul says that as followers of Christ, we're now under the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.21. So what is the law of Christ? Well, when Jesus was asked, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Matthew 22, 36 through 40, on these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. I wonder, have you ever taken the time to actually allow the weight of that statement by Jesus, the implications of what he's actually saying here for your life today, have you ever allowed that to really sink in? Because honestly, we should all make room for a significant amount of space in our lives just to meditate on that one statement by Jesus and what it actually means for us today. All of the law. All of it. And all of the prophets 
Everything that God's people then were taught and governed by, all the law and the prophets in the Old Testament, it all boils down to God's people today loving God and loving each other. This is the law of Christ that we as followers of Christ are subject to. You understand it's not a great suggestion. It is the great commandment and it is in fact the law. It is the law that we are subject by God to live our lives by as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. So I, the Apostle Paul said, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6, 2, because loving God and loving each other is the law that is to rule our very lives. Now, uh, philosophically, probably theologically, nobody has a problem with that because that all sounds really great. Where the problem comes in for many of us is in the understanding of exactly what Jesus meant when he said what he said. Because in our culture today, when someone says they love you, often what they're actually saying without realizing it is, I love the way that you make me feel. Which is something entirely different than actually loving someone. And the reason that matters is because when you no longer make that person feel the same way, they no longer love you. Which means in their mind they're free to leave that relationship and write you off because you no longer make them feel the way they want you to. And so you end up with broken marriages and broken friendships and broken families and broken churches and a broken society because what we call love isn't actually love at all. Because real love isn't based on feelings, you see. Real love is based on identity, which means if someone truly loves you, they've made a commitment to you based on who you are, not on how they make you feel or how you make them feel. All right, look, God loves you. Why? God loves you because of who you are, not because of how you make him feel. Ultimately, his love actually is based on who he is. But the point is, true love, real love, is based on identity. God loves us because we're his creation, meant to bring him glory. We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ephesians 2.10. He loves us simply because of who we are, his creation. For God so loved the world. His creation, John 3, 16. That's why Jesus was able to love those who were beating him, spitting on him, mocking him and killing him because his love for us is not based on how we make him feel. Otherwise, God help us all. You understand it goes both ways. When we say we love God, it cannot be based on how he makes us feel. No, it must be based on who he is, our creator, our hope, our light, our truth, our savior. He is our king. And our love for God must be based on who he is, not on how he makes us feel. Because listen, God never promised or intended to always make us feel good. 
In fact, he will often make us feel bad precisely because he loves us and he wants us to grow and mature and gain understanding and wisdom, which means discipline, which I know very well never feels good. And so true love is based on identity, not on feelings. And to take it one step further, to understand how that true love is then expressed in our lives, well, we have to look to the cross. True love is laying down your own life for God and for others simply because of who they are, not because of what they do for you or how they make you feel. Jesus gave his life for those who hated him, for those who were killing him. That's what true love looks like. See, when Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Before we get too excited about an easy gospel that requires little from us under this new law, except that we should have loving feelings toward Jesus and other people. I see that so much today, even in the church no, it is vital that we understand when Jesus said the greatest commandment that all the law and all the prophets are fulfilled in is to love God and to love each other. Listen, it is vital that we understand what he was actually saying. He was saying the greatest commandment of them all, the law that you as a Christian are bound to live your entire life by, the law that is to rule your life daily, that law says that you must give up your life for God and for other people. That's why Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13, this is the law of Christ. It's the law that we as followers of Christ are now living under. This is the law that we, we live by. We're to be governed by. A law that says we must give up our own lives for the sake of Christ and for the sake of other people. And we are to live out that law under the reign of no other king but Jesus Christ himself. And so the question then for us today is why if we're members of this new kingdom, living under this new law, subject to the rule of a new king, why do so many Christians live as if we still belong to the kingdom of this world? Under the old law, subjecting ourselves to the ruler of this world. That's what God's people have been doing, actually, from the beginning. The Israelites, after being freed from the yoke of slavery, continued by their own choosing to submit to the rulers of this world. Rulers who gladly enslaved them, as we've seen throughout this book of Judges. Right? And then in the first century church, after receiving Christ, Paul had to instruct the Christians at Galatia, having been freed from the yoke of slavery of sin, to stop resubmitting themselves to it. Galatians 5.1 and of course, the same question can and should be asked of us today. If we say we're followers of Christ, knowing that we belong to no other king but Jesus, why do we sometimes still submit ourselves to the ruler of this world who gladly enslaves us to all the other things that we allow in our lives to rule over us? Why? Why do we subject ourselves to the law of sin and death rather than the law of Christ? 
Why do we subject ourselves to the love of this world, which is based on nothing more than fleeting feelings when we've been given freedom to give and to receive the love of Christ, which is based on the identity of Christ himself? Why do we long for something other than that which God has already provided for us as believers and followers in Christ? It's as if we're hoping for something more than what he's offering. So we search for something greater than God in a world that he created. It doesn't make any sense. Why search for something created to fulfill us when the creator is offering us himself? And in truth, all of these questions can be summed up in this one question. It's one that we should be asking ourselves anytime we allow anything other than Jesus Christ to rule over us. And that question is this. Why am I not satisfied in Christ? If there's truly no other king, if his law truly sets us free from the law of sin and death, and if his kingdom truly is eternal, according to the angel Gabriel in Luke 1.33, then why are we not satisfied in Christ? Why do we think we need something more? And if we do think that, what more could there possibly be than to serve the only true king, Jesus Christ? Why am I not satisfied in him? Why is he not enough for me? This is a question the Israelites had to wrestle with as well when it came to serving Yahweh, the one true God, as we'll see in our story today as we continue working our way through the book of Judges. So let's pick up the story then where we left off last week at Judges chapter 9 and see if we can answer this profoundly important question, why am I at least at times in my life, why am I not satisfied in Christ? We'll begin by reading the first six verses. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, uh, Jeroboam, by the way, is another name for Gideon. We were studying Gideon before that. So Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on, behalf, on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of baal Berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him, he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. For the past few weeks, we've been working our way through uh, the story of Gideon. At the end of the last chapter, we learned that Gideon died uh, in his old age, but not before fathering at least 70 sons by the many different wives uh, of his harem. And yet there was another uh, son of Gideon, this Abimelech, who's given special mention in that same chapter as he is uh, the child of Gideon's concubine, a woman from Shechem. And even though Joshua 
had captured uh, Shechem earlier, we know that the population of Shechem was still predominantly Canaanite. Right? We have uh, ancient cuneiform tablets. These are stone tablets written in the Akkadian cuneiform language. It was the language of um, ancient Mesopotamia all the way back to the 14th century BC, which are referred to today as the Tel El Amarna letters. And in those letters, we have records of Shechem falling into the hands of the Habiru people. All right? If you translate the name Habiru, it uh, literally means dirty. The Hibiru were outlaws, rebels, raiders. Uh, they were mercenaries, bowmen, slaves. These were godless, rough, pagan people. And then later in this chapter, in verse 28, the men in Shechem are referred to as the men of Hammer. These were Hivites, Canaanites, who can be traced all the way back to Genesis 34, where they defiled Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. So these are Abimelech's people. He was born to a concubine, a slave wife, of the people of Shechem, not the child of one of Gideon's free wives in his harem, which means Abimelech would have had a much lower status in Gideon's clan than the other 70 brothers. In fact, the, the children of concubines in the ancient Near East typically had no inheritance rights, uh, no claim to their father's inheritance after his death at all, with few exceptions, which is significant in the story because although Gideon was not a king officially over Israel, after his successful military conquest over the Midianites, the enemies of Israel, Gideon asserted himself as a king over God's people anyway. If you were here two weeks ago, you'll remember that Gideon took possession of a considerable fortune from the spoils of war, as any king would do. He, he took a harem of wives for himself, as any king would do. He, he set up a golden ephod in his hometown, which was the symbol of the ruling high priest. And, and just in case his intentions weren't clear enough, he names one of his sons, the one who happens to be the subject of our story today, he names him Abimelech. And if you translate the name Abimelech from the ancient Hebrew language, it literally means, my father is king. And so Gideon was not a legitimate king over Israel, but he ruled over God's people as a king. And here's where it gets interesting. Because if there was any chance of Gideon's sons making claim to Gideon's wealth and authority over Israel after his death, the only one of them who would have been unequivocally, undeniably unqualified to make that claim. The one son of them all who definitely could not make uh, the claim to his father's power and riches and authority over Israel, that son was Imbibelech, the son of a concubine from Shechem. That is, of course, unless every single one of the other sons were to somehow meet an untimely death. And so Abimelech, knowing all of that, of course, goes to his mother's hometown and convinces the only people in Israel who would listen to him, his relatives, to support his bid to become king over Israel against all odds. And so they convince the leaders of that city to take 70 pieces of silver out of the temple of their pagan god, Belbereth, and they give it to Abimelech so he can hire mercenaries, Habiru people, men without integrity or conviction to help him in his quest for power. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. 
Stone, by the way, was a pagan altar. In other words, Abimelech ritualistically sacrifices his brothers one at a time to the pagan god Belbereth on a pagan stone altar. You might think that gruesome act would repel the Israelites from wanting to follow Abimelech, but actually just the opposite was true because as we saw at the end of chapter 8, verses 33 through 35, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Belbereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good he had done to Israel. And so by killing Gideon's other sons on the altar of Baal-bereth, Abimelech has instant credibility with the people of Israel who hated Gideon's family at this point and worshipped the pagan god Baal-bereth themselves. And just like that, Abimelech, the least likely son of Gideon to become king over God's people, is declared king over God's people. And yet even at that, it was still an illegitimate claim, even after killing the other sons. Why? Because one of them, the youngest son named Jotham, is still alive. In fact, the only reason that Abimelech was able to rule over anyone was because the people voluntarily submitted their lives to him. You see, it's the same for us today when it comes to the things that we allow to rule over our lives spiritually. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, listen, no other king has authority over you except that which you give him. Why? Because Jesus Christ is alive and well. And he conquered death in the grave, which means you're no longer subject to the law of the ruler of this world. So how does our enemy then, Satan, the ruler of this world, as Jesus refers to him in John 12, 31, how is he able to exercise authority in our lives? Well, he can't unless we give it to him. Look, the, the Israelites were ruled by the Egyptians for 400 years. And yet as soon as they were given freedom by God, they complained to Moses that they wanted to go back to Egypt in Exodus 14, 12. They were ready to submit their lives once again to the very people who enslaved them for four centuries. They were choosing the illegitimate rule of their enemy over God's legitimate rule in their lives. And then after experiencing the supernatural power of God Almighty working on their behalf, miracle after miracle after miracle, they chose the illegitimate rule of a pagan idol, a golden calf in Exodus 32 over the legitimate rule of the God who had performed supernatural wonders before their very eyes. Then all throughout the book of Judges, they choose the illegitimate rule of the Canaanite pagan gods instead of the legitimate rule of the God who led them into victory over those very same Canaanites and their pagan gods. And then in chapter 8, they chose the illegitimate rule of Gideon's golden ephod instead of the legitimate rule of the God who just defeated their mortal enemies right in front of them while they did nothing more than blow 300 trumpets and wave around some torches. And now, now they're choosing the illegitimate rule of Abimelech, a murderer and a Baal worshiper, instead of the legitimate rule of the God who had already defeated Baal at the hands of Abimelech's father, Gideon. 
You see, none of these pagan gods or pagan people or worthless idols had any authority over God's people whatsoever except that which they willingly gave to them. And it's no different for us today. Our enemy and the lies that he tells and the worthless idols that he parades around in front of us, none of it, not one shred of any of it has one ounce of authority over one moment of our lives except that which we willingly give away when we submit ourselves to those illegitimate things instead of submitting ourselves wholly and completely to the only legitimate ruler over us, no other king but Jesus Christ. You understand, the only authority that addiction has over you is the authority that you give it. The only authority that money has over you is the authority you give it. The only authority fear has over you is the authority you give it. The only authority that lie you've been believing in has, has over you is the authority you give it. The only authority that depression has over you is the authority you give it, look, anything other than Jesus Christ that is ruling your life today, stealing your joy, wrecking your emotions and keeping you from becoming all that God created you to be, those illegitimate things can only exercise the authority in your life that you give them. The only reason the Israelites were now being ruled by Abimelech was because of the authority they willingly gave away when they made him an illegitimate king over them. Notice he, he can't make himself king. He had no authority to do that. No, he had to convince them first to go and convince others to give him money so that he could hire worthless men to try and take what did not belong to him by destroying what he could never become on his own, a legitimate heir, and yet the people willingly submit themselves to him by giving him authority that he had no rightful claim to. It's just what we do in our lives today. Yet as deceived as the Israelites were, there is one who wasn't fooled by Abimelech. One who could see what was really going on and like a preacher and a prophet who loved them enough to tell them the truth even though it was not what they wanted to hear. Jotham stood on the top of that mountain Preached a sermon they would never forget. Let's read it. Verses 7 through 21. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? The tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. 
Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the leaders of Shechem because he is your relative. If then you've acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. So Jotham escapes the mass murder of his brothers by Abimelech and climbs to the top of Mount Gerizim, looking down over Shechem. Uh, Shechem was located in a fertile valley between uh, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And interestingly, it's the same spot where the Israelites renewed their covenant with God back in Joshua chapter 8. And so from this mountain of blessing as it was known, Jotham pronounces a curse. The first half of his sermon is known as Jotham's fable. It depicts the noble trees of the forest, each rejecting the call to rule over the cedars of Lebanon till the offer is finally made to the bramble. Bramble was famous at the time for being worthless, for anything good, okay? Uh, the bramble grew like a tangled weed spreading across the landscape low to the ground, covering everything in its path like a carpet. It's sort of like the kudzu of the south. It was worthless as a source of timber. It produced nothing of value. It was a constant menace to the farmers who were continually having to cut it back. And worst of all, in the dry heat of summer when scrub fires would start, anywhere there was bramble wood, the fires would spread at incredible speeds uh, along the ground through the dry tinder of this thick, low-tangled bramble, which became a constant threat, especially to the giant cedar trees of Lebanon, which were easily burned up by the fire that would come out of the bramble. And so when Jotham says, if in good faith you're anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Everybody understood what he was talking about. They got the word picture. That these cedar trees representing the people of Shechem were asking for trouble by inviting the worthless and dangerous bramble, representing, of course, Abimelech, to rule over them, which would ultimately threaten their own survival. And yet... For Abimelech's part, Jotham draws attention to the absurdity of Abimelech's offer to rule over them as their king and protector by likening it to the bramble making an offer to the cedar trees to come and take refuge in my shade. Because again, the bramble wood grew low to the ground. The idea that bramble could cast shade over a giant cedar tree was completely absurd. Then right after sharing this fable, this parable, Jotham goes on to interpret it to the people of Shechem just to make certain they understood what it was they were getting themselves into. You see, Abimelech could offer nothing of value to the people of Shechem who were longing to be ruled by someone, anyone, other than the one true God. He could not protect them from the fire. In fact, the only thing he could do was lead them right to it right to their own destruction. 
And listen, if there's anything other than Jesus Christ ruling your life today, it is so important that you get this. And so just like Jotham, I need to say it very clearly because I don't know what may be ruling your life right now, but whatever it is outside of Jesus Christ, if there's something, listen to me, no other king can offer you salvation. In fact, every other illegitimate thing that you allow to rule over your life instead of Jesus Christ can only lead ultimately to destruction in your life. Outside of Christ, whatever rules you will ruin you. Outside of Christ, whatever rules you will ruin you. The people of Shechem would soon enough find this out for themselves, which we'll see next week as we finish this chapter. The fact that there's nothing in this world, no matter how attractive or pleasurable or promising, there's nothing in this world that can provide you with the kind of abundant life that we're all looking for other than Jesus Christ. We all want our lives to matter, right? We all want to be needed. We all want our needs to be met. We all want a life that is full of purpose and promise for the future, for an eternal future. And of course, there will never be a shortage of things in this world other than Christ that will claim to provide all of that for us while ultimately leading us to self-destruct. Of course, there are illicit things, the forbidden things. We all know about uh, illegal drugs and alcohol abuse and uh, promiscuous sex crimes of every variety, those things get most of the attention, but the reality is there are just as many people, if not more, who are enslaved to otherwise good things which they've allowed to rule over their lives instead of Jesus Christ. Relationships that are out of balance, religion that is out of focus, priorities that are outside of God's will, and probably most of all a desire for self-gratification that is out of control. And so under the kingship of Christ, he provides a rule of law that brings our lives back into alignment with his kingdom, the law of Christ. Because when the focus of your life is loving God and loving others by laying your own life down for them, all of the other illegitimate things that we allow to rule over us begin to fade in the light of God's love and truth. We no longer focus on ourselves like we used to. We no longer idolize other relationships like we used to. We, we no longer pant after the passions of this world like we used to. Why? Because of the incomparable, unequaled, immeasurable, unimaginable, unconditional love of Christ that overwhelms every other would-be passion in our lives. And so the key to living a life where Christ is enough is obeying the law of Christ with all of your life. You see, if there's any other law governing your life other than the law of Christ, then you're a lawbreaker. And those who break the law end up where? In prison, in chains, enslaved by their own desires, the ruler of this world promises us ultimate fulfillment through every other possible avenue available in this world. And the entire time he's doing nothing more than leading us toward our own destruction, our own captivity, our own enslavement to our own desires. 
So God provides a way to salvation, only one way. One way to salvation from that enslavement. One way to freedom. One way to the truth. One way to abundant life. Jesus Christ is the way. He's the only way. He said it himself, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. No other king can offer you salvation. But when you submit your life to Christ and then live according to his law, you will find that he is everything you long for, the fulfillment of every desire, the answer to every yearning, the provision for every need, the healing for all your brokenness, the hope for every tomorrow, the courage to face your fears, the freedom from all your sin, the light that overcomes your darkness, the love that overwhelms your loneliness, the peace that settles your spirit, and the salvation that rescues your soul there's no other king but Jesus Christ and yet so often we allow our lives to be ruled by so many other things and and then we wonder why Jesus isn't enough for us it's because you're living outside of his law If you will truly submit yourself to the law of Christ in your life under his kingship, everything will change in your life because then your life comes into alignment with the rule of law that governs his kingdom. But that means this law of Christ is something you actually have to live by. Your entire life must be governed by this law that says you're now required under the law to give up your own life for the sake of Christ and for each other. Which you absolutely cannot do if your life is ruled by anything other than Jesus Christ. And yet when your life is submitted to him, he says you can do all things through Christ. No other king can offer that. No other king can fulfill you. No other king can satisfy you. No other king can guide you where you need to go. No other king can provide for you what you need for this life. In fact, no other king can claim any authority whatsoever over you when your life is submitted to Jesus Christ. No other king can do what he can do. No other king but Jesus. Let's pray.